Thank wow. you, Lord. The Holy Spirit is in this place. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, it is uh, it's good to be back with you after being away for a week or so. I think I've been under that same weather that so many of you have been under. It's kind of kind of easy to do, so I, it's good to be back and good to uh, just have such encouragement from the church family here. This month, uh, we've been working through a series of sermons based on questions and topics you yourselves have provided. And it's been a good series. We've had a lot of positive feedback. Week one, we examine how to love those who are hard to love. We probably all have those in our lives, and honestly, probably some of us are those people in our lives, you know, dealing with difficult people. Um, week two, we looked at why the story of the woman at the well, uh, the story found in John 4, why her story is in the Bible. We concluded that she was a prime example of a divine appointment. Uh, last week, CJ did an excellent job. I wish he was in here. He's actually upstairs teaching the, uh, teaching the kids. But he did an excellent job uh, dealing with how to honor the name of God. And he reminded us that if we, the church, want God's name to be honored, where does it start? It, it starts with us, right? And, and not just our words, but how we represent his name in our actions and the way that we live life day by day. Now, what all of these topics have in common is that we drew our answers from the Bible. Rather than a series of lectures from the perspective of C.J. or David, we responded to your questions according to what the Bible says. We did so because we believe that this Bible is so much more than just a book. And that brings us to today's question. Someone submitted uh, this. We are to fully believe everything in the Bible, but isn't there still realistically potential for man's interference and ineptitude in translation and record keeping? I mean, how do we resolve such a potential with what has been written? Example, did those guys really have million-man armies or hundreds of thousands of soldiers fighting? It seems so unlikely. That's a good question, because it speaks to questions all of us have had at one time or another. I mean, yours may not be about a huge military force that, uh, that seems unreasonable. Rather, you may have issues with certain miracles, like a floating zoo with an eight-man crew surviving a flood that covered the planet, or a runaway prophet being divinely redirected by being swallowed by a huge fish and then surviving three days in the belly of that fish. Or 5,000 plus hungry people fed and satisfied with a young boy's lunch. Some wrestle with that, others with the place of prophecy, still others with the place of science. All of us have something that tweaks our sense of reason that might well require more faith than we think we've got. But here's the thing. Never be afraid to ask such questions. God is fully capable of withstanding any examination, including yours. Just be fair 
and be open to learning something you might not have known before. See, God does not mind our questions. It's when we assume we've got all the answers that that's what gets us in trouble. My hope is that you will walk away this morning uh, not only with an answer to today's question, but with a greater appreciation for the reliability of God's Word in everything. And I mean everything. Let's begin with one of the best-known texts about the Bible in the Bible. Um, It was written by Paul and written to one of his protégés, Timothy. In fact, it is among the last words ever written by Paul, written in his final letter from a Roman prison, penned shortly before his death. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 17. That's where we'll begin this morning. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, with, with the Bible which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Last week, I went to Cincinnati to visit my mom. Having lived now in South Bend, 28 years. I have made that trip back and forth to my hometown so often I could almost do it blindfolded. Well, maybe not blindfolded, but you you get the point, right? There's very little between here and there that I have not experienced. That is until late that Wednesday night of my trip. Wanting to spend as much time as possible with my mom, I left right after the Wednesday night life labs. I figured on about a four-hour trip door-to-door so I could make it to mom sometime between midnight and 12.30. And I assumed that there was an added benefit to traveling by night, that I wouldn't have long lines of construction traffic to deal with along the way. For the most part, I was right. Most of the road crews were home snug in their beds by the time I left South Bend. However, when I reached Indy, I found that they had a third shift. And that shift had a section of that circle freeway, you know, 465. They had a section of that freeway um, completely shut down. And it just so happened that it was a section of the freeway I had intended to use. Now, if I'd known, I would have planned an alternate route, maybe even consulting my trusty GPS for its input. But it wasn't until I was right on top of that detour that I realized that my section was the section that was closed. And I was tired. I was very tired. And it was late. It was very late. And traffic seemed to to multiply by the second with driving more like the Indy 500, only with less skill. As the detour took me through the heart of town, apparently everyone in Indianapolis decided to go with me. There weren't a lot of signs to highlight my my detour to begin with. Uh, But there was also this combination of bright lights, 
a plethora of additional construction barrels and barriers. And it surprised me because I thought I was getting away from construction. I thought it was a detour away from that. Instead, it just seemed to be multiplying. There were more semis than citizens along this particular route. No offense to truck drivers everywhere. Gary, sorry. Um, but those things are big. And, and when you're looking for signs and you're looking for all this stuff and, and all of a sudden just, oh, I think there's a sign. That'll tell me where I'm, oh, oh, no. There's like three semis all together right in front. And then you add to that my, my aging eyesight. Well, and then I had this suspicion, even from the start, that I was headed in the wrong direction, that I was getting further and further away from where I needed to go. I don't know if you've ever been on a detour like that, but it seems to be taking you in the opposite direction. Well, it made things challenging, to say the least. But then, as I'd be driving along and in between semis, I would see a sign. And that sign would say that I was on the right path. And then, eventually, I'd see another sign. And what seemed like hours later, I'd see another sign. But uh, finally, I just decided, okay, okay. I'll just go with the signs. They must know what they're talking about. And eventually, I found myself right at the exit that I needed to get back on the road to Cincinnati. And it didn't take near as long as I thought. What seemed like hours was really you know, just a matter of minutes. But it seemed so much longer in my head. I will admit, I am a typical male. I do not like taking directions from anyone. I don't like taking directions from my GPS. I just ask my wife. I don't like taking directions from construction workers or their signs or anyone. Even when I'm flat out lost, I figure eventually I'll get there even if I have to travel all the way around the world in order to get to where I'm going. But sometimes, sometimes, we all need to seek direction from someone who has a clearer picture of everything involved. And isn't that really the basic purpose of the Bible? To provide direction for life from someone with a clearer picture of everything involved. And it's a good thing we've, we've got that someone with the clearer picture. Because more than any time in history, even with all of our technology and science and education, I, I think you would agree ours is an age of confusion. Many live with a sense that there are no absolute standards to guide decision making, no right or wrong, just what's acceptable in the minds of those in positions of influence. So we're left with following whichever argument has the slickest presentation. Everything from bioethics to the politics of climate change, from sexual identity to the definition of marriage, most would have us believe that these and more are subject to constant change and adjustment based on the whims of whatever is popular in the moment. With so much of our cultural lean in direct conflict with previous standards, even the church appears to be confused. The only real answer is to seek direction from a God who sees the end from the beginning and everything in between, who sees everything perfectly, directing even world affairs for his glory and our 
ultimate good. Who not only has the power to call the universe into existence. He holds it all together. And he holds us together. And we can all access the bulk of his direction for life. In one book. The Bible. Now, that does bring a question, right? How do we know that such an old book is still reliable in today's world? Well, for one thing, the Bible is the Word of God. And that means two things. First, it is inspired in its writing, in its origin. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 reads, Literally, all Scripture is God-breathed. Some of the older versions render that last word inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God. And that actually fits because our English word, inspire, evolves from the Latin, which means to breathe upon or to breathe into. Unfortunately, that's not what we think of when we hear that word inspire, right? We tend to use the word inspire to describe the emotional impact something or someone has on us. Nearly anything that touches the heart, we say, inspires us. A bold leader might inspire confidence. A beautiful poem might inspire pleasant thoughts. Anything from songs to movies to a feat on the football field, we deem inspirational. But when Paul used the word, see, it had more to do with its impact on the intellect than the emotions, the written text than the human heart. It connects the Bible to its source, Almighty God. Meaning it came from His mind. It came by His authority. So that we have in Scripture His stamp of authenticity. If you want to know what God is thinking, if you want to know how He feels, if you want to know what He wants, if you want to know His will for for all of us, He has revealed it in His written Word. And because God is the source, not only is the Bible inspired, it is inerrant in its teaching, which is really quite an undertaking considering that the Bible itself is actually a collection of books, right? 66 books in all, written over a span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors writers. And yet, here's what the Bible says about itself. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect, and the word of the Lord proves true. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The word of God endures. The word of God proves true. The word of God will never pass away. Breathed out by a perfect God, that implies God's perfect transmission to the apostles and to the prophets. Now, there have been errors by those who transcribed copies of copies of copies of copies of the original. One of the most infamous was in what was meant to be a reprint of the King James Version of the Bible by the Royal Printers in London in 1631. Problem was, in the nearly 1,000 copies that were made, a word was left out of the seventh commandment, an important word. 
in what became known as the Wicked Bible or the Sinner's Bible. Exodus 20 verse 14 reads, Thou shalt commit adultery. (laughs) But here's the thing about that story. It is a case where the exception actually proves the rule. Transcribing errors have been so infrequent that they stand out as something very odd when they happen. In contrast, the tens of thousands of manuscripts dating to within a century of their original writings, many of them, they're they're the most corroborated documents in all of history. Not only in the agreement between manuscript and manuscript, but with the overwhelming verification of history and archaeology. Every time that they find something that others would think would detract from Scripture, they find that it actually is supportive of Scripture. Every generation has had its share of detractors, of skeptics, who proclaim such and such stated in the Bible could never be true, only later to have evidence of biblical testimony proven beyond doubt. Um, An example. For centuries, skeptics argued that Isaiah could not have been written when it was claimed to have been written. That such prophecies made concerning future rulers, including Jesus himself, they were far too detailed to have been written in advance of these individuals' appearance in history. Isaiah had to be a collection of writings, not fully developed until after at at least Jesus had lived and died. Well then, in the late 1940s, came a discovery by Bedouin shepherds of what became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, copies of ancient writings that included the scrolls of Isaiah. They were proven without a doubt to date back to at least 200 years before Christ, and skeptics thought they had their smoking gun, only to have the scrolls themselves reveal almost perfect agreement with the Isaiah we have in our Bibles. There are many more examples. Some, uh, some of the best, uh, are found in this book called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. I I would encourage this if you have individuals that you're working with. I know Randy has taught this as a class and and did a great job with this. I I have more copies than just three. So if you want a copy of this, just let me know after the service. I'll be glad to get this to you. A lot of very good material on dealing with individuals who are skeptical of biblical truth. And uh, Josh McDowell does a great job. He, um, spent, he has spent most of his life working with college students, working on univers- in university settings, uh, helping out students there. Now, let's get back to our question. The million man armies, the hundreds of thousands of soldiers recorded at a time when it doesn't seem possible such numbers could exist. Well, of course, there are some that just simply reject it altogether because they say, well, the Bible can't be true. This is an obvious mistake. This is an obvious error. Uh, there are some who suggest, uh, they, they would say, well, well the biblical text is, is true, but, it, but the writer is using hyperbole. Uh, the Bible speaking uh, of, of things in such a way that it's an exaggeration in order to make a point. Uh, kind of like when the Bible talks about Abraham's descendants being as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Uh, you know, don't go out and pick up sands and start na- numbering them and, and saying, oh, well, 
I found a mistake in the Bible. There's obviously not as many descendants as there are grains of sand. Well, it's, it's obvious hyperbole. Uh, there are others who make the argument that these numbers are simply symbolic of overwhelming size. I, I, think, about, uh, I think about Jesus when Peter came to him. He said, he said uh, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Remember what Peter, what number he laid out there is a good number? Seven times? Should I, should I forget? And, and probably at the same time, kind of patting himself on the back because no one ever thought about forgiving their brother seven times. I mean, come on. And remember what Jesus' response was? I say not to you seven times, but 77 times. Again, it's not, don't, don't go home, get out a notebook and start writing down. Okay, number one, forgave. Number two, forgave. And then when you get to 78, you say, ha, Jesus said I could now not forgive you anymore. That was not Jesus' point at all. It, the number was merely a symbol of just don't stop forgiving. Just keep on forgiving people and keep on showing mercy. And that shows by the story that he told afterwards. But here's, here's something that I want you to consider. All that we know about ancient peoples is what we've uncovered so far. There is so much more that we do not know. Who is to say that such large numbers were not raised up by God for his own purposes and then removed for those same purposes? And my own general rule of thumb is to label things symbolic only when it's obvious, when the testimony of Scripture or reason itself says that it's so. Uh, most of us get the idea. When Jesus said, I am the door, Jesus said that, right? Most of us get the idea that he's not saying that he was a block of wood with hinges. We get the idea that there is some obvious symbolism going on there. But whenever possible, I view words of Scripture as literal, as if someone is writing an account of history or truth. They're simply describing what they are seeing from God's perspective. That fits its own testimony, the testimony of Scripture itself. Prophecy after prophecy over thousands of years. They were fulfilled not as mere figures or illusions, but literally over and over again. Specific nations rising and falling. Blessings, curses, plagues. These were real things that people experienced in real life. From worldly kings who could not endure to the king of kings who reigns forever. Bob Russell used to say that if you can believe the first four words of the Bible, what are the first four words of the Bible? In the beginning, God. Okay, if you can believe that, the rest of the Bible should not be a problem. Because if God really is God, what's impossible to him? Well, nothing. And that includes providing his own word written and preserved for our benefit. See, this, this book, regardless of how you have it, whether you've got it on, in a book form or you've got it on your phone or you've got it on your tablet, the Bible is more than just a book. And it is so because an amazing God made it so. Not only... Not only do we see that the Bible is God's own word, we see that the Bible is designed to be lived out. There's a practicality to the Bible. 
God gave us his word so that we would have a pure source of information as to how to live. Look back at our text. It is to be used for teaching. Again, we know exactly what God's will is uh, on the most important things of life. We can know so by just looking it up. I mean, if he didn't write it down, you can be sure there's a reason for it. And if he did write it down, you can be sure there's a reason for that as well. God intends us to do more than carry the Bible around in our hands. He intends us to get its contents into our hearts, into our minds. He wants us to let it show us how to live life, how to think, how to act, how to put into practice his will. That's why he gave us the Bible. It is also to be used for reproof. Uh, some versions have uh, rebuking. Uh, the word uh, refers to confronting wrong behavior or wrong belief. Scripture exposes sin as sin. It's like shining a, a light in a dark room. Sin can and should be dealt with through personal confession and repentance. But it, it must be revealed to the sinner first. Like the Ephesian Christians who, when confronted by the truth about their way of life, they openly confess their evil deeds. Luke says in Acts chapter 19, he says that a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly so that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's used for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. This word refers to restoring something to its proper condition. It was used in Paul's day to describe the act of taking uh, an object that had fallen down and setting it back right again, of helping someone who had stumbled back to their feet. Scripture not only reveals what's wrong. We would have this idea that sometimes the Bible is all about the thou shalt nots, right? Don't do this, don't do this, don't touch this, don't touch this, don't do this. But that's not really the bulk of Scripture. The bulk of Scripture is teaching us not just what's wrong, but what's right. The Bible is also used, Paul says, for training in righteousness. This goes a step beyond mere correction to developing new positive behavior unrelated to our past sins. The word has to do with, and I love this, has to do with training up a child. I mean, that's, I, you know, we don't think of ourselves as kids, right? No, especially those of us with a lot of snow on the roof. I mean, we don't. You know, we don't think of ourselves as kids. And maybe compared to others, we're not. But compared to God? Oh my. And so he has given us the very best textbook of all. To teach us how to live. To teach us how to be pleasing to him. The Bible is our source of truth to teach us about God. It's our source of light to show us our sins. It's our source of help to get us back on our feet again when we stumble, and it is our source of wisdom and knowledge to train us how to be the best that we can be. Our God, He uses His Bible, His Word, in order to bring about the changes that need to be made in our lives. The Bible is God's Word. It is designed to be lived out. And finally, the Bible is an essential tool of the Holy Spirit. He uses it for a lot of things, but I'm just going to highlight three. First, he uses the Bible in spiritual warfare. 
In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul makes it clear our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other human beings, no matter how it may seem at times in life. You can always bear this in mind. You've got somebody that is ragging on your last nerve. You've got somebody that is just absolutely uh, just ripping you to pieces on the inside. Understand that the source of that is the devil. Because the devil has schemed to capture the mind of man and manipulate our actions right down to our thoughts. So the Holy, Scripture, the Holy Spirit equips us with spiritual tools, with spiritual armor. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith in God, salvation. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And it's this final piece of the armor that is so unique. Because it can be used both as something offensive and it can be used as something defensive. It, it, it can certainly be used offensively, not, not offensively. But it can be used as something that, with which we can rescue others. We can use the Word of God. Uh, maybe someone has committed a sin, a sin from which they want to be set free. We can step in between them and the enemy with truth. Truth, like if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Or, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Maybe a temptation has gotten the best of a friend, and he or she feels all alone. You know this. You've had these conversations with people, and they're struggling with something, and they are feeling as if they're the only person in the world with this burden. And then the Holy Spirit prompts you to 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The Bible can be used to rescue others. And the Bible can also be used by us to help us defend ourselves. I find this particularly comforting. The longer I live, the more I go through, the more I, <laughs> the more I go through life. How powerful it is when a particular verse or a portion of Scripture comes to your aid, even as Satan assaults you with pain or anxiety or anger or fear. Any of you out there felt that this week? Feeling that right now? Just the thought. Psalm 23.1 The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Or, or the thought that God wants to meet all of our needs. He, he really does care about us. First uh, Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time He may exalt you. That He may lift you up. You're down? Anybody dealing with depression? Any, anybody? Anybody ever dealt with depression in this room? Anybody? Too depressed to raise your hands. I get it. God wants to lift you up. And He promises to do so when we put our trust in Him. Verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on Him. <laughs> just getting rid of all that stuff. You ever just walk around with a lot of stuff? And you just don't think it's ever going to go away? And Peter says, well, here's what you can do. I've been there, Peter says. I've been there. I denied Christ. 
I felt like I'd lost my best friend in all the world. My whole world came crashing down. I've been afraid. I've been locked behind closed doors. I have been weeping over my own mistakes, my own blunders, my own messes. But you know what I did? I cast all my anxiety on the Lord because I knew He cares for me. And Then He wrote it down by the direction of the Holy Spirit. To know that God not only wants to meet our needs, it's one thing to have good intentions, but He can and will meet our needs. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. According to His glorious riches that are in Christ Jesus. See, He takes out of His treasury, not ours. It's a good thing, right? This reminder, Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, we just sang this, didn't we? If God is for us, who can be against us? 1 John 4, 4. Uh, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But God, you don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know how oppressed I feel right now. I just feel overwhelmed. But then he says back, remember, remember, remember. I'm greater than the one in the world. And I'm living in you. Wow. Talk about an ever-present help in time of trouble. See, that's our God. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. Do you get the point? This book is so much more than just a book. When you use it, it is not you making the promises. It's not you exerting the power. It's the Spirit of God. My words will vanish like a mist, but the Word of God stands forever. God described His Word this way, Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my Word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Wow. Not only does the Holy Spirit use God's Word for spiritual warfare, He uses it for spiritual surgery. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of Listen to this. Soul and spirit. Soul and spirit. Soul and spirit. It can separate those things and see what's there. Joints and marrow. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He doesn't just know what we do. He knows what we think. The Holy Spirit can go places you and I could never dream of. I've lost track the number of times I've preached a sermon only to have someone come back to me and say, Preacher, I am so grateful that you talked about such and such today. I really needed to hear that, only to realize I didn't say what they thought I said. But the Spirit took the Word, convicted the heart of whatever was necessary, and then moved the person to act. Often, I don't even know the issue that they're dealing with. But God does, and He knows how to heal a wounded soul. Any actual help you receive from mine or CJ's preaching or anyone else's for that matter, that help does not come from the preacher. It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 121.2. His spirit, his word. One more thing. Holy Spirit uses the Bible as an agent of change. Folks, we just don't give God enough credit. We don't. We, we just kind of show up and do our thing and we go through life and we'll pat ourselves on the back or we'll pat others on the back without realizing that every good and perfect gift comes from above from the Father of the heavenly lights. You've got something good in your life. It came from His hand. If God is truly who He claims to be, He is enough no matter what the situation. 
But all too often, we turn every which way but God to fix our problems. You know, I remember that word in our text, God breathed. I hear that word and my mind goes back to the beginning, to the very beginning. You remember when God formed man. He used what? The dust of the earth. Dust. A handful of lifeless dirt. He took that and he shaped it and he molded it with his own hands. But once he had the form in place, did he then have a man? That's a question. Did he have a man at that point? No. All he had was a well-shaped pile of dirt. Until he breathed into the man the breath of life. And at that point, that pile of dirt became a living soul. The lesson is simple. When God breathes, there is life. Remember when the disciples were gathered together following the resurrection? They were still shaken, uncertain what the future would hold as Jesus himself stood there in their midst, having already been raised from the dead. Living proof, God can do anything, right? They gathered around Jesus, and Jesus said to them, John 20, verse 21, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then he does something odd. He does something really odd. He breathes on them. And the Holy Spirit came upon them, and their lives were forever changed. Because when God breathes, there's life. Not just air filling the lungs, the Spirit of God transforming every aspect of life, making us into the likeness of Jesus himself. That Bible that you have in your hands, no matter what format you have it in, that Bible is so much more than anybody could ever imagine. So much more than a book. God breathed out those words for your benefit. So that you could know how to live. So that you could know how to become more like your heavenly father. He wanted to get those words into your life and your heart. So what do you do with such a book? Some put it on a shelf where it gathers dust. Others put it on display like some religious relic or good luck charm. Hoping some blessing will come of just having it. But the wise, they honor God's book, His holy word. How? Well, first, read it. Read it. You will never get anything out of God's word unless you get into God's word. Second, do what it says. James 1, 22-25 says, The person who doesn't put into practice what he reads is like someone who looks in a mirror and forgets what he saw. It's only the one who acts on what he has heard who's promised a blessing. I think about this when it comes to salvation. You know, when people come forward and they come by faith and they repent and they confess and are baptized, you know why they do that, right? Everybody know why they do that? It is not because this church says so. It is not because the preacher says so. It is because that is what God gave us in his book. And he said, this is how you become a child of God. This is how you are born again. This is how 
sins are removed. This is how my spirit comes inside you. This is how you get hope of heaven. See, this is how. And he wrote it down because he didn't want us to miss it. And he made it simple. He made it simple. None of this is complicated. I could go back to junior church and say the same thing. And they would get this. This is the way God wants to bring us all to him. But it does no good to know that and not do that. Understand? Put it into practice. If you're not yet a Christian, today should be the day of salvation. If you know what to do, just do it. Finally, use the Bible to help others. The Bible will never have its full impact until you use it to benefit someone else. I remember the story told by Bob Benson of an African man who was led to Christ by a missionary had come to his village. As a gift, the missionary gave the young convert a, a copy of the Bible. And the African man was enormously excited and appreciative about this treasure, which made the missionary all the more surprised when just a few months later they met again and the missionary saw the condition of the Bible. It was worn, it was torn, it was tattered with what looked like lots of pages missing. I thought you would have taken better care of the Bible I gave you, the missionary remarked, to which the man replied, It is the finest gift I have ever received. It is such a wonderful gift. I gave a page to my father. I gave a page to my mother. And then a page to everyone in the village. God intends us not only to enjoy his word. He intends us to give pages of his book to everyone in our village. One story at a time, one lesson at a time, one truth at a time. Until everyone, everyone comes to know the, the hero of this book. We know him, right? Jesus. Jesus.